wonderful singing. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This will be our third and final Sunday looking at these particular verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our message this morning is entitled, The Main Ingredient, Part 2, picking up where we left off last week. Let's look to the Lord and ask for His help, even as we've just sung, but again to ask that He would teach us now. Father in heaven, we look up to You, O great triune God. We thank You that You've spoken We thank you that you've given us this precious book. Holy Spirit, we even ask that as you have breathed out this word, that you now in your ministry of illumination would teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness, all for our Savior's sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. The main ingredient, part 2. Oppenheimer blue, pink star, hope, diamond. Three of the most precious and pricey jewels ever found by humans. The Oppenheimer Blue, a 14.62 carat diamond, because of the rarity of its color, skyrocketed in value, or back in the economy of 2016, this diamond, Oppenheimer Blue, sold for $57.5 million dollars. Pink Star, internally a flawless diamond, approximately the size of a ripe strawberry, itself 59.6 carats, because of its size, because of its clarity, color, and intensity, back in 2017, it sold for $71.2 million. Perhaps you've heard of the Hope Diamond having its own very unique origin in history, mysterious even, residing now in the Smithsonian Museum, this hope diamond so deep blue in color, and yet if exposed to UV ultraviolet rays, because of trace elements within, it will begin to emit and emanate this red color. 45.52 carats, the diamond itself, its price is estimated as being anywhere between 200 to 350 million dollars. Three precious and pricey jewels, and yet when compared with another jewel, that is itself precious but rather priceless. It makes these jewels found by humans 
comparable to the jewelry given away often at a child's birthday party. You ask what jewel is this precious and this priceless? It's the very jewel before us in 1 Corinthians 13. The jewel that the Apostle Paul seeks to put on display as he records and as he writes and as he describes this jewel that is biblical agape love. The very love tragically missing in the church at Corinth. You remember how we began in chapter 13 in the midst of all the confusion about spiritual gifts and all the conflict and division in the church at Corinth? How Paul hones in and describes that the very thing that they need most, the missing ingredient, that of love, that after exposing its absence, now he begins to describe and put on display the very main ingredient, that which is needed both in the Christian life and, of course, within the life of the church, love. You remember where we've been, that this love, put simply, it is affection expressed in action. It is an affection beginning in the heart, but always, always expressed outwardly in action. Meaning, this love is never dormant, it's never in hibernation, but rather outwardly, visibly, tangibly, dynamically, is always active. Motivating, animating, stimulating, driving and fueling the engine of the heart. And after having exposed love, love's absence in Corinth, of course, the church would be all ears to hear this jewel that they most needed as they sought to listen and understand what true love really is. And in the same way, you and I, as we hear these verses, similarly need to grasp the nature of true love. So Paul puts forth this jewel, or rather to change the imagery a bit, Paul will take his paintbrush and on the pages of the canvas of scripture with 15 strokes will seek to paint a portrait of what this love is. 15 brush strokes, if you remember, each specifically using verbs. Again, to further drive into our understanding that love is active, that love exercises. We do well to even pause and take a step back and remember the Bible has been given by God not just for our information, but he intends to use it for our transformation. Put simply, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to grow and sanctify the child of God, to look more like the Son of God, all for the glory of God. And as that's true of many in all places in Scripture, such is the case with this portrait, this jewel of love. So let's hear again the description of this main ingredient in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. The Apostle Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. 
and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here is this jewel put on display, true biblical agape love. Again, 15 descriptions, 15 verbs. We could say this jewel has 15 carats. But for our purposes, as we began last week, we hold up this jewel, and as we begin to look at it, we can actually begin to see it according to its nine facets. Do you remember where we left off last week? Or if by chance you're visiting here today, as Paul begins to describe love, and as we look at it according to these nine facets, and even emphasizing how love is active We saw first last week that love exercises charity. Charity, bringing together this concept of patience and kindness that love will so actively exercise towards not just circumstances, but people, patience towards them, and even outwardly an active kindness towards them. That's what love is. But not only is love exercising charity, Paul will continue and will explain that second, love exercises humility. And it's here in the account that Paul, trying to present this well-rounded picture of love, he doesn't just simply tell us what love is, he begins to tell us what love is not. And as he tells us that love exercises humility, he tells us in a threefold way, that love isn't jealous, love doesn't brag, love is not arrogant. Stated differently, love in the way it views others, it doesn't envy them, it's not jealous of them. True love as it wants others to look at us, it doesn't brag, it doesn't bring attention to oneself. And even the way that one in love views oneself It doesn't go about viewing oneself or thinking of oneself or carrying oneself arrogantly. No, rather, love exercises humility. But not only that, as it exercises charity and as it exercises humility, you remember third, love exercises modesty. Very clearly in the account, love does not act unbecomingly. A word built into it, meaning there's a standard, there's a line, there is an expected social and moral norm, of course, informed by God, informed by his word. And Paul says, love doesn't prance up to that line or dash across it. Love considers others, love is mindful of others, and rather does not draw attention to oneself. It doesn't go beyond that boundary. Rather, not acting unbecomingly, it exercises modesty. Modesty in the 
heart attitude, modesty, of course, in our actions, even modesty in our appearance, all beginning in the heart. And fourth, as it exercises charity, humility, and modesty, you remember love exercises selflessness. Very bluntly, love doesn't seek its own. Love isn't obsessed with self. The world might be all that it offers might try to encourage that in us, but love shifts from that. Love is not just in Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2 words, not just looking out for one's own interest, but it looks out for the interests of others. Love will actively consider others more important than oneself. And even as love exercises this selflessness, thinking of what ground Paul covers earlier in 1 Corinthians, even in the realm of what we call gray areas, areas in the Christian life where there is freedom, there can be liberty. Love will be mindful of others, and love will not be selfish, but will be selfless, and will even tell itself, I may be free. I may have liberty. But in this instance, for the sake of others, I will deny myself because love does not seek its own. But those were the first four facets that we saw last week. Now we got to pick up the pace and see the final remaining five facets as Paul will continue in this account. If you're taking notes this morning, fifth now, the fifth facet that we see as Paul puts love on display. It is simply this, found in verse 5, love exercises restraint. Love exercises restraint. You see, in your passage, Paul writes, love is not provoked. Your translation might say, love is not irritable. Paul speaks here of a term that's getting into the very depths of ourselves, what goes on on the inside. And when love is active and when love is exercising itself, it is not upset, it is not easily angered, it is not exasperated. And it's interesting, the way that Paul writes this, he actually speaks of this with this verb passively, as if as others interact with us, as others respond to us, as others speak to us, as those outside forces come in upon us, the response from within, Paul says, we are not irritated. We are not to be provoked. And of course, if we were to go back to the church in Corinth with all that we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians, you wouldn't simply find church people. You'd rather find cantankerous people. Not a pleasant Sunday morning. You go into that assembly as everyone's divided and not showing love towards one another. You'd find people short with one another. 
silent towards one another, avoiding one another, not looking at one another, or even blowing up at one another. And Paul writes, love will not do such a thing. Love on the inside will restrain itself. And of course, we understand the way that people, of course, can irritate us, if we're speaking honestly, the way that people can annoy us, but it's even more than that. Think and consider how circumstances can provoke us, can irritate us. It's almost like the opposite of that term, patience. Patience, of course, will be patient not only with circumstances, but goes further and it's patient towards people. The reverse here, love, not simply is not provoked by people, but when things go awry, when things don't go to plan, when suddenly the plans shift and it's different, the deck is shuffled, the items on the chessboard are rearranged, and you then, on the receiving end of these circumstances, Paul says, love is not provoked by that. You might sit here and think, yeah, but okay, what does that look like? Let me ask, what's happened when your internet has gone out unexpectedly? What was the response to that? Something outside of your control. Get a little frustrated? A little angered? I pay such and such each month. I expect it to work. What happens when in a major house appliance suddenly breaks? That ever irritate you? Have you ever been provoked by that? Does that make you mad inside? So mad, so irritated, so provoked that you then can't shake it and all around you in the home or even here at church are on then the receiving end of this grouchiness, irritableness, because you've been provoked. Sure, we all would honestly admit, yeah, that there are times where that happens, maybe even in this last week. And we could go further and ask why. Why is it that there are times where suddenly one moment we're fine, the next moment we're provoked and irritated? Well, friend, think of the image of an iceberg. You know, as you look at an iceberg, you see something, but much more is beneath the surface. In the same way, what's visible, that provoking, that irritableness, that is what we see, but down deep beneath the surface, hidden to the eye. In a word, you find our expectations. Have you ever thought through this? We all have them. It's quite normal to, in the heart, expect certain things, want certain things, desire certain things. I want, I expect, I desire others to treat me a certain way. I want, I expect, I desire this device, this appliance to work a certain way. 
When I go to work, I expect the work environment to be a certain way. When I head home and I open the door and I come home, I expect my family members to view and treat me and speak to me a certain way. Even my home, the way that it's arranged, I have a certain expectation of how that's going to be. And that's all good, well, and fine. However, very subtly, often without even realizing it, those desires become demands. Those expectations, I expect, I want, suddenly becomes, I must, I need. Without realizing it, whether at home, whether even at church, whether at work, these expectations, we begin to lay them out like invisible trip wires. So, of course, what happens when a person, when a circumstance trips that invisible trip wire? Well, we become irritated. We become provoked. Again, heaven forbid, our spouse, our child, someone at church trips one of these expectations down deep beneath the surface. Otherwise, the response, I'm grouchy, I'm irritated, I'm provoked. And for each and every one of us, it manifests in different ways. For some, oh, when this expectation is tripped, we blow up. Oh, we explode verbally, physically, an outburst of anger. You think only children have temper tantrums? Do you remember the coach, Bobby Knight? Remember the tennis player, John McEnroe? Of course, all visible on TV. Yeah, what happens privately in the home? Has there been some blowing up taking place? You say, oh, no, I, I don't do that. Maybe not, but maybe you clam up. Oh, the trip wires have been tripped. And you have a little bit of restraint to not outwardly explode, but inwardly, friend, the low country boil is on. Spiced with some silence spiced with some avoidance, spiced with some uh, no eye contact, spiced with the cold shoulder. Oh, I'm going to get my point across to those that have bothered me. Clamming up. Why? Because I am provoked. I am irritated. And friend, Paul puts his finger on this very thing, and he proclaims, is this the way of love? No. Far from it. Rather, love will exercise restraint. Love will exercise and be aware that, yes, there are these expectations, but when they're tripped, when they're violated, the response is restrained. It's not that we become touchy. It's not that we're this adult that's hard to handle and hard to please. No. And it's not even that love then becomes defensive or speaks to one another with a, a verbal edge. Sometimes we take this and we say, yeah, but this person is annoying. You don't deal with this person every day. 
You know, friend, that excuse is removed by the way that Paul writes this in the grammar. As others act upon us, as that annoying so-called person acts on us, the issue's not with them. The issue's in the heart. That love will exercise restraint. And will say to oneself, my heart will not go there. Of course, we'll admit, yes, there are times where this is hard. Maybe even a particular person comes to mind. Can we provide this counsel? Consider their condition. Is that person lost? A stranger to this God? A person on the path that you once were? A path headed towards sure destruction if they don't turn to the Lord to be saved? A person needing pity? A person needing God's very love? And you, this instrument in this person's life, being one who can show them this very love to respond irritated, to respond provoked? No, friend, love will not do that. Love will consider the condition. Love will even consider, okay, they may not be lost. Are they saved? Are they loved by God? that Jesus laid down his life for this person. He loves this person. He's welcomed and embraced and accepted this person. And my response is going to be irritation and annoyance. To even think one day in the far future, alongside of this person, we both will stand around the throne beholding the same Savior. Will I be grouchy on that day? Will I be provoked and irritated on that day? Well, if I will love and embrace that person, then can I not, by the grace of God, do so now and exercise restraint? Put very directly, what if God treated you this way? I mean, haven't we done enough things to provoke and irritate him? And yet, does he withdraw, clam up, or does he explode, blow up towards his children? Love exercises restraint. Sixth. Love exercises forgiveness. Love exercises forgiveness. And even as we move into this sixth facet, we understand many ways, many times, others have wronged us. Others have sinned against us. Paul is aware of that. The Spirit inspiring him omnisciently knows that. And yet... Love, you see in the passage, does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
And again, like holding up the mirror to the church at Corinth, showing them the very way that they were falling short. If there's division, if there's disunity, if there's conflict, well, of course, it's because these individuals are not forgiving one another. They're not being reconciled to one another. Rather, they're holding on to, they're nursing, they are dwelling on the very way they've been sinned against or they've been wronged. And you know, the term Paul uses here, it is so vivid and graphic. Directly speaking to the mind. A word speaking of giving careful thought to, of considering and pondering and letting one's mind dwell on. Again, this this gift that God has given to us. That he has bestowed upon us a mind. Animals have brains, but you and I have been given minds. Minds that are able to think, to reflect, to remember. To camp and to dwell upon. A mind that has been given by God to be used in service to Him, to know Him, to love Him, to consider and commune with Him. But instead, here, oh, it's been deployed into another service. As it goes and it dwells and it thinks and it camps, Oh, where is the campsite? It's on the very sins and on the very wrongs that have been done to us. Like an accountant. Keeping the books, keeping the accounts. It's as if this accountant says, yes, I use QuickBook for these expenses, but I use my mind for these offenses. And just as carefully as I track the transactions, so in my mind I am keeping record of what they've said, of what they've done, sometimes even what they haven't done. We begin to pour over these wrongs and what begins to happen, it is fuel added to the fire deep down bitterness. I trust you're aware of the transforming power of the gospel. Are you aware of the transforming power of bitterness? The very way if someone holds on to and dwells upon the wrongs, the sins that have been done to oneself. How it can begin to change and transform the person. You get biblical evidence of that in Ruth. You remember Naomi? It begins, she's known as Naomi, meaning pleasant, but all the suffering, all the trial, all the wrongs done against her, she then arrives back in Bethlehem and says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. And the coals that feed and stir up this fire It's taking into account 
the very wrongs one has suffered. Of course, keeping a mental list, tracking and recording, or even worse, keeping a literal physical list. Writing out and recording all that one has done to go back to, to pour over, ready to use, ready to deploy for one's own advantage. And of course, how someone so nursing, so bitter, so dwelling upon the wrongs done, that if that other individual comes and approaches expressing sorrow, expressing guilt, how now this person will take that and even weaponize it. Oh, you're coming to express sorrow to me? To tell me the wrong that you've done to me? I'm going to let you suffer a little more. I'm going to let you feel sorry a little bit longer. You've hurt me. I'm now going to weaponize and make you hurt some more. Groveling enough. Uh, Taking and weaponizing this as if it's a form of emotional blackmail. And if, if someone is to come, oh, I now establish and elevate myself as if I'm the relational pope and I will make you perform verbal penance. Maybe you've done enough. Maybe you've said enough. Maybe finally you've groveled enough that I then will grant absolution. True in Corinth, true today, but the Apostle Paul asks, is this the more excellent way? Is this the way of biblical love? No. Love exercises forgiveness. Yes, wrongs have been done to us. Sins have been committed against us. But love will forgive. And just to clear it all up, sometimes we forget even what this most important term means. When we forgive someone and exercise this forgiveness, we're essentially making three promises. When I say I forgive you, I am promising I am not going to bring this up to use it against you again. I'm promising that I'm not going to bring this up to air it out to others. And I am promising that I will not bring this up to myself. I will not take into account a wrong suffered. I will not let my mind so dwell on that. And yes, of course, there is the hope always that that other person will finally come, will express sorrow, will admit, I I have sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? And the hope that then in granting forgiveness that there can be this beautiful reconciling in relationships. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes that other person doesn't approach us. But at least we can do our part. At least deep down in the heart and before the Lord, even to make those three promises within. And you say, oh, yeah, but, but 
You don't understand. You, you just don't know. And of course, I don't. But the one who breathed this out does. In fact, the greatest tragedy when sin and wrong is done against us, it's not that it's ultimately done against us. Always, always, it is also done vertically against the very last person sin should ever be committed against. So thinking upon that, dwelling upon that, going then and camping further, consider, friend, as you seek to exercise forgiveness, think of the way God in Christ has forgiven you. Freely, fully, finally. As he himself promised, as he takes our sin, he says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your iniquities. As he says in Micah chapter 7, I will take your sin and bury it down into the depths of the sea. As he even promises in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. Friend, as God has so forgiven us, so then ought we, following this pattern of love, exercise forgiveness. Again, even following God's wisdom for resolving conflict, confessing, repenting, forgiving, and reconciling. So it's simple. And we certainly need the Lord's help. Seventh, love exercises charity, humility, modesty, selflessness, restraint, forgiveness. Love exercises conviction. Conviction. You could use the term tenacity. To grip and to hold something firmly. That Paul in verse 6, as he says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. He is telling us and describing for us that love will have some conviction. What are convictions? Someone once put it, it's not that you have convictions. It's rather that convictions have you. That you so firmly believe something, so firmly hold to something, that it 
grips you, that there's a belief, there is a principle, there is a standard, there are some things you will do, and there are some things you absolutely, by conviction, will not do. And that captures what Paul says in verse 6, even to put it differently, love will love what God loves, and it will hate what God hates. You ask, God, God hates something? I thought God is love. He is, but that love is a holy love. That means that this holy God, there are some things, there is one thing even specifically that he absolutely hates. What is that? Sin. And love here, as it hates what God hates, you see in verse 6, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather it rejoices with the truth. And you know, if you're paying attention this morning, you know that here immediately uh, we see there's a collision about to take place. Because God puts forth this definition of love At the same time, the world now puts forth its definition of love. Competing, contrasting, colliding with what God says. Is the definition that the world offers of love the same as this love portrayed in 1 Corinthians 13? Oh, no. Does it have these nine beautiful, rich facets? Far from it. It rather has two. Acceptance an affirmation. Unconditional acceptance and celebratory affirmation. The world has put forth this definition. It's come into crystal uh, clear clarity just in the last few years. And as it goes around and as it proclaims even that love is love, it trumpets forth this definition that this love, the alternative offered by the world, there is to be acceptance, there is to be affirmation. But of course, we ask, what is it that is to be accepted? What is it that is to be affirmed? What is it that is supposedly to be celebrated? The very thing that God, holy God, in his holy word, pronounces and declares in his sight is sin. That means you and I come to a crossroads. What path are you going to take? What adventure will lie ahead? Again, the world says that this is real, true love, but is that the case? As God describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, in no uncertain terms, no. True, biblical, agape, holy love in no way celebrates, affirms, accepts, or tolerates what God himself declares is sin. 
You know what that means? That what the world says about marriage, gender, attraction, identity, choice. In your heart, is love going to exercise conviction? Not crudely, not crassly, but not rejoicing in unrighteousness. Why? Because God declares there are some things clearly that are sin. You might wrestle with this. Even young people wrestle with this. How can that be? Friend, is it loving to pat on the back and applaud and give the thumbs up to the very thing that if not repented of will send that person to an everlasting torment in hell? That is the farthest thing from love. No, no, no. Love will love what God loves, but love the other side of the coin will hate what God hates and will not find joy, will not find happiness, will not celebrate the very violation of this God's word. Going even further, love doesn't act like TMZ does. You familiar with that? Someone has a shortcoming, someone has a downfall, someone very publicly commits sin, and this then puts it forward, is applauding, is entertained by, and exploiting someone else's sin. Love won't rejoice like that. Rather, love is grieved seeing the sin in another person, touched even to the heart, stirred up with compassion. Love also loves what God loves. Love will rejoice with the truth. What truth? Chiefly, God's truth, God's righteousness, God's holiness, wherever that is put forward, recognized, and honored, that's what's celebrated, that's what's rejoiced in. Love, then, will exercise conviction, biblical conviction. But, oh, now, come to the final two facets And quickly, because Paul picks up the pace in the final verse of verse 7, in four rapid-fire, staccato-like fashion, he rattles off four more descriptions. The first and the last we can group together. The two in the middle we can group together. Uh, Walking through them, number eight, the eighth facet of love, love exercises constancy. Constancy, love, Paul says, bears all things and endures all things. Love will bear up with difficulties, will cover up, will pass over any annoyances, any difficulties, any challenges, any personality traits, any odd habits or weird quirks or lack of consideration. Love bears up with this, and of course, if needed, love will correct. But love will 
uh, on the whole, bear up with constantly in durable fashion. Not only that, love will endure all things, all difficulties, all hostility, all opposition. Uh, When it sees it approaching, love doesn't change lanes, but it keeps course no matter the pressure, no matter the burden or weight. Love will endure and bear up under and even suffer patiently. Why? Because this love is, of course, strengthened by God. If there are times of pain, suffering, deprivation, loss, hatred, loneliness, love doesn't give in, and love doesn't give up. Love exercises constancy. And ninth, and finally, love exercises optimism. Not just any kind of optimism. Love exercises biblical, gospel, grace-filled, God-centered optimism. In what way? Love will believe all things. Love will hope all things. Like how a compass always points north, love as its default will believe and will hope. In believing all things, love as it interacts with people, rather than assuming the worst about the person, rather than uh, thinking and imputing wrong motives or thinking uh, what is wrong about someone, love will believe the best. Of course, love isn't foolish and gullible and naive, but love as its default, it will give people the benefit of the doubt. Love doesn't carry itself in suspicion, but rather will believe all things. Love will practice that. Like when a text is sent or a message is sent, and on the other end, there's a long period of silence. Love doesn't automatically think and assume, oh, what did I say? Why is that person angry with me? Rather, love will give the benefit of the doubt and will believe all things. And yet those times where it is hard and it's a challenge to, love will kick it into the next gear and will hope all things. It will hope all things. Why, you ask? Because love knows and love so lives as if there is a God who sits on the throne. A God who is all sovereign, all wise, all good, a God always at work, always working out his purposes, thus knowing, believing, and trusting him, I will so live and I will so love as if God is on his throne. That means then, as I see in others, failure, Hoping all things, failure doesn't automatically mean it's final. When it's hard to believe all things, and I then have to hope all things, I will go to this God, I will pray and plead, you can change this person. You would be glorified to change, even to save this person Will you not act and be glorified, O great God? And as John MacArthur so helpfully states it, as long as there is life, 
there is hope. Boy, is that a word to perhaps you parent, that prodigal child, you person, you friend with the wayward family member, the wayward friend who so long has persisted in unbelief, will not love hope all things, will not love so then take that to God, even to storm heaven by prayer. Love will exercise such optimism. Oh, then, what a jewel. Nine facets. How rare, how beautiful is such a treasure. Rightly, Paul says in verse 9, then, love never fails. This is the main ingredient. This is the love that's to be in our hearts. This is the love that Paul portrays or even shifting the imagery, the love that he paints on the canvas of Scripture. But you know, as we walked through those facets, and as we look closely at these descriptions, are they not familiar? Have we not seen them all somewhere before? We look close and ask, what is love? But as we take a step back and look at this portrait and ask, who is love? Do we not see the portrait Paul himself has painted? Love sent down from heaven. Love that has taken on flesh and blood and bone like you and I. Love that itself walked this earth. Love that in all of its richness and in all of its beauty put it forth on display. And yes, so many ways we look at these facets, we look at our own lives, how we fall short. But we step back and look at this portrait, rather this person. We see what it looks like fully on display. Do you know whom I'm speaking of? The great, the glorious, the grand Lord Jesus Christ. We walk with him in the gospel accounts and we see on display, is he not patient and kind? Was he ever jealous? Did he ever brag or was he arrogant? Did he ever act unbecomingly? Was he ever selfish? Did he get irritated and provoked as he interacted with people? Did he take into account wrongs suffered and watch closely the ledger of the sins committed against him? Did he, when he walked on this earth, rejoice with the unrighteousness that was so on display? Or rather, did he always rejoice with the truth? 
Has there ever been someone who bore all things? Has there ever been someone who believed or hoped all things? Has there ever been someone who endured all things? And to think he did such for the sake of his sheep and for the glory of his father. And if this glorious, loving Lord Jesus, friend, if you belong to him, it is with this very love that he has loved you, saved you, forgiven you, changed you, and continues to grow and change you day by day. And are you sitting here this morning and you don't belong to this Savior? Is there anyone as glorious as him? Anyone that you would bank your eternity on rather than him? Seeing this on display, how can your heart not be melted and see I am a sinner, I am undone because I have not loved in this way, but he has. And approaching him by faith, how in his love he can forgive, he can wash and cover and remove and bury and remember your sins no more. If you but turn and trust in him. And aren't we thankful? He loves with such a love. Father, we thank you for this glorious portrait displayed in 1 Corinthians. May you help us now as we look at these descriptions and see them on display in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in beholding him, we would be transformed that we would love as we have been loved. We need help. We need grace. We thank you that you are strong and kind, ready to help your children. We pray this for your sake.